Black Women's Stitch is happy to celebrate the 200th episode of the Stitch Please podcast with AccuQuilt. It's our birthday, but thanks to AccuQuilt, we're giving gifts. All September, we counted down to 200 episodes in October. Every week, we gave away one AccuQuilt Go Me fabric starter set and culminated with the grand prize giveaway of the Go Big electric fabric cutter starter set. If you are new to AccuQuilt and are thinking about investing in their system, the Ready, Set, Go bundle is your best value. Ready, Set, Go provides everything you needed to get started. An AccuQuilt Go cutter, the 8-inch cube with 8 essential dies to create 72 blocks, a die to easily cut multiple strips, squares, and diamonds. You also get a pattern book. And the best part is, at any time, you can upgrade your Go cutter to the fantastic Go Big, which is what I have where the AccuQuilt magic can happen at the touch of a button. June Taylor, a well-known name in the Notions game, is now part of AccuQuilt. Links to AccuQuilt's wonderful products can be found in the show notes. Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. We are celebrating today our 200th episode. Yes, 200 episodes. Listen, when I started this podcast, I just thought me and my mama was going to listen. And then my mama told me that she was busy and she had other commitments and she couldn't listen every week. You know, she's retired, so she's got a full schedule. And so I said, I'm listening all the time, but my mama will listen sometimes. And now here we are at 200 episodes, and I can tell you I had a vision for this episode, and it has come true because I am speaking with none other than Bisa Butler, who is a creative genius, a former teacher, and she stays schooling us, even though she's no longer teaching. She stays schooling us in the beautiful intricacies of Black possibility. And I knew that one day this was going to work out. I knew this was going to work out. One day I saw Bisa at the Harlem Needle Arts Zoom back in 2020, and her work was just amazing. And then I listened to Bisa on a clubhouse room also in 2020, and she helped me to formulate a question that I always ask now. And it is, what happens when you stop starting with white And we'll talk about what that means in both of a practical art practice as well as socially and politically and culturally, because her work reflects that. And y'all, I knew it was going to happen because our names rhyme. I'm just going to say that our names rhyme. I'm not going to say we look alike, but I'm saying we favor. Can we say we favor? Yep. Yep. I'd say that. And I think we were born like with three to four years of each other. I just felt like all things being different, we could have been like, you know, grown up together. If I was in New Jersey or you were in South Florida. So I'm just saying, trust me, New Jersey probably was a little bit better for you. Although I love Florida as it is when I was a kid, but now 
Uh-uh, not now. So welcome, Visa Butler, and thank you so much for being with us today. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I know we have been talking about this for a while, and I'm so happy to finally have the pleasure of sitting down and talking with you. I agree so much. I feel the same. Listen, y'all, if you are not a Patreon supporter, why are you not? You totally should be, because there are some gorgeous images that go along with our gorgeous images of our faces. So of course, anyone can listen. It's free to listen. And if you'd like to see this beautiful conversation unfold, join the Black Women's Stitch Patreon. I'm going to share the first image is when Bisa Butler added me as a friend on Instagram. As you could say, I think you were talking about the playlist and I was saying how much I appreciated the playlist. And we're going to get to the playlist because I'm so grateful for those. The kind of sonic, the multi-textural experience of your work, I think, is absolutely enhanced by the audio. And so I was like, yeah, I jammed to this music in my studio. And you said, I do the same thing. And then you started following me. And then I was like, now I'm going to frame this. I will put this image next to my other pictures of my children, etc. Because I'm really excited about it. And y'all don't get to see it if you're not a Patreon supporter. So I don't know what to tell you. And we also had the opportunity to connect at your show. And this is a photo of us. This is me with my very excited hair. I did not Photoshop my one little hair that was standing straight up at happy attention. because No, got- it is important. <laughs> <laughs> That's my antenna to the ancestors. Like, hi, thanks, guys. Thank y'all for making this happen. And we also have another photo with Dr. Diana Njai Baird from the Smithsonian. And she was a guest on the show a couple years ago talking about her work at the Will to Adorn. And I just love that she just happened to be there for her class reunion and heard about the show. And so it was a gorgeous reunion. And I think she was one of the first people to give Faith Ringgold a solo show. That was one of her, something that she did. I was just like, what? I know some amazing people and I'm talking to one right now. Also this, this one I have to share as well. This was from the Renwick show and this was some friends from Black Women's Stitch and Naomi and Shauna and we had (laughs) such a great time. Yes, that was an amazing day. It was so amazing. I have to confess and tell you that we got there, you know, the pandemic is starting to wind down a bit and it's a bit of a challenge to get places. And so it was like my first foray out like into the world. And I got to the bottom, I got to the gallery, finally checked in and parked and somebody said, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to see Visa in real life. And someone said, oh, she's right upstairs. And I said, she's here? Like I knew <laughs> I was like, and no cap, I actually started to cry. I was just like, oh no. I was just so overwhelmed girl. I was like, finally, listen, I'm just going to tell you, you know, I just really admire all that you do. And I'm so grateful for the chance to speak with you. Let's get started talking about your sewing story. When you turn yourself, I know you won an art competition when you were four years old, which is fantastic. So small. Actually, they're not small to children, but those acknowledgements mean a lot to the little people. Yes, that's why I think they give them certificates and they put like my son is 19 years old and still has some certificates on his wall from like good citizenship. Oh, I love it. That's important. Yeah, it helps to feed them. It helps to encourage them. And I guess, you know, what it reminds me of there's also very easy ways to harm a child, even when you don't mean to. You're not doing it on purpose, but you crush their little dreams or you say you don't put their art on the refrigerator or whatever. And they start to a little bit of them crumbles inside, I think, you know, and I think it's our job as just human adults to never do that. You know, I remember walking into the classroom every day and saying to myself, first of all, you know, first thing do no harm like you know like a doctor but and I had teenagers very very sensitive yes 
you could give them a funny look and, you know, they're just set off. And I'm like, no matter what I do today, I want to teach them this thing. But what I will not do is harm them in some kind of way. Yes, yes. And I think that is the heart of care that I think is important, not just for teachers to have, but for all people. But I think teachers are the ones that think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the ones that hold that, you know, as a priority. But so tell me about young Bisa wanting Barbie clothes. And I think your mom was like, okay, now it's time to learn to sew. <laughs> I actually wanted Barbie clothes, but I wanted my mother to sew them because I was super creative. So I had these ideas of certain outfits that I wanted my dolls to wear. This probably was in the late 70s, like 78, 79. And who knows what it was, but I wanted my Ken doll, as a matter of fact, to have a pair of tweed pants. My mother was like done. She was sewing her clothing as a lot of women did in the 70s and the back like family room had a big table and her sewing table we knew better don't touch her table don't even sit at the table but I would sit on the floor and I think after like the fifth outfit that day she was like no enough and she sat me down with a hand a little needle and thread and showed me how to sew these little tweed pants for Ken and that was my first outfit. Do you remember why they had to be tweed and why you couldn't was stylish I don't know your kid couldn't get store-bought clothes from the Lionel Play World or the Toys R Us? That was the thing, though. My mom wasn't buying. He came with an outfit. She wasn't buying more outfits for him. That was out. And my parents had divorced early on. And my father might have bought the outfits. But mom's, absolutely not. She had all that fabric. And I think they were tweed because she had given me some of her remnants. And she must have been making something tweed. Maybe it was fall. I don't know. But my Ken was going to be, <laughs> he was going to be in line with the fashions of the day. Yes. He's like, listen, he came with clothes and that's the clothes he will have for all eternity. And Bisa was like, unless you do something about it. Doing something isn't ordering me to make him out of it. Like doing something. I, <laughs> I remember that because I was definitely interrupting her. My mom was a fashionista, so was my grandmother. My mother was raised in Morocco because her father was a U.S. emissary. Mm -hmm. And as a lot of foreign service workers, they were middle-class people suddenly thrust into this world of like intrigue. When they got to Morocco, they still had a sultan. There was the sultan of Morocco. Wow. Yes. And also the people of Marrakesh and our prayers. And I have been donating and if you all donate as well. But my mother grew up in Rabat, which is the capital. And they would go to embassy parties and she needed to, she was a child. Let me preface this. My grandmother needed her children and herself to look like they fit in those circles. And um, these are all diplomats and who knows, whatever. And they would look at the time, I think they had Vogue magazine, but they had magazines like Marie Claire, which was a French magazine, or Harry Match was another French magazine. And as you recall, I'm sure you know, Lisa, they used to have the Vogue patterns. I guess they still do. Yes, they do. Vogue patterns, they're still always the most expensive ones in the drawer. Wow. <laughs> Well, like, you know, you'd be looking at your Vogue magazine and then there'd be ads in there. Would you see this outfit and it'd be like Vogue pattern. So they would sew from patterns or they would just rip out the picture, create the pattern themselves. Yes. And they always worked on paper patterns because my mother had nine siblings. So there were 10 in total, but seven of those were girls. So my grandmother would need to make 
multiple outfits, all the children about a year to two apart. With these embassy parties, you could have 16 age girls and they might all six have the same pattern, but the pattern comes with different versions. Yes. One has long sleeve, one has short sleeve. So that was what my mother grew up in. That sense of creating your own high fashion, like based off of a Christian Dior ad, stayed with her. My mother was a teacher, French teacher, but honey, those outfits. <laughs> okay. Oh, they were given Embassy Gala. Embassy Gala, Christian Dior, Halstead. I don't know like who was big in those days, Yves Saint Laurent, like the older French designer. Yes, that's right. That's right. And then here comes a little Bisa, like I want to make things too. And so I would get those remnants. So that would be like designer or designer style fabrics, high quality fabrics, yes. dressmaker fabrics. And it started with my dolls and then progressed to me as I got older. You speak about family and having this be part of a, like a family legacy. And your first quilt that you made was made for your grandmother, Violette. Yes. That was like one of the first pieces. And was this the same grandmother who lived in Marrakesh? She lived in Rabat. In Rabat. Yes. But this grandmother, she, my grandma Violet was born and raised in New Orleans. And all of my grandmother's side all the way back, you know, until we could trace back since there were so many free Black people. Yes. And it was a very Catholic city. So I was able to see it on Ancestry. Cousin of mine did trace all the way back to a woman who was on a plantation whose father owned the plantation. And she was able to save her money and buy her freedom. And this was like 17 Wow. So whatever. So that's a long line of free Black people. And as you know, and as we still are, we're strivers. Yes. And that city was very set apart with um, racial lines and color code lines, hair texture, even like how you're dressed, you know, are you a servant or are you somebody's slave or are you free? You could tell the difference based on how that person was dressed. Yes. So it was my grandmother, Violet, who kind of set off the fashion trend. And then that she was the one who married Francis Hammond, who went to Morocco. And we were talking off camera before about yes. W.E.B. Du Bois. And my grandfather was a philosopher, too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was the first dean of philosophy at Seton Hall. Oh, wonderful. So... You kind of feel that thread in my work. Like I'm always seeking for truth and to find those essential truths or elements about Black people, but then also the fashion part. Yes, but make it fashion. But make it fashion. <laughs> like of all the pictures of W.E.B. Du Bois, I have never seen him look raggedy in nearly a one. Oh, never. Grooming, impeccable. Even when he was losing his hair, he still got those edges done. Okay, suit flawless and fitted. Absolutely. I mean, like, no pleats, no creases. And also, this was a time when photography was rather new. And, like, you didn't get to, like, take a picture, look at it, and take it again. Mm -mm. You took it, and you had no idea what you looked like. That is true. <laughs> like, weeks later. It took a while. They weren't going to CVS. There was no one-hour processing. I didn't even think about that, how long it took them to see that plate. 
It's so long. And that's why I think when you said come correct, you had to come when you stepped in. Yes. You knew what you had was going to work. Right. And I think one of the beautiful things about the photos that you work with, they're these historic images of Black life from the early 20th century. Just for this one we mentioned earlier, y'all, this is an image right here from our community where I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. There, This is part of the Holzinger collection that was curated by my colleague, John Mason the African-American history and photography professor here at UVA. And this image, again, y'all, this image is worth the price of the Patreon. I'm just going to say. It is. Hello, Mr. Bill Hurley. Hello, cheekbones. I don't smoke, but you can light my cigarette, sir. Like, (laughs) listen, the vest. Can we talk about the vest? Wow. Look at all those buttons. Look how the lines are lined up. Do you see that? From the left to right, top to bottom. I'm seeing that and in the tie itself, look at the shape of the collar, like everything is chosen with care. Everything, the eyes, the gaze, just all of it, the poise. When you first saw this image, what in your mind, because this is a black and white image, it's a historic image. And listen, my old goofy self, when I was a girl, I remember vividly believing that my mother lived in an age of black and white. (laughs) Listen, Bisa, I was convinced that their existence, yes, was black and white because all the TV shows that we watched from the time when she was little, like Leave It to Beaver and all of that stuff. They didn't get color TV until like the late 60s or which was before I was born or early 70s. So I thought, well, listen, this is just how I am as a person. I thought I had actually bought color into this woman's life. Wow. That her life looked just like this picture. And then when I came into her life like this, this was her life before she met me. And this was her life when I was born. That was when you were born. Wow. I spent a lot of time trying to convince her that this was what I did for her. And you're welcome, Ma, because you would have been living in a black and white world unless I came into it. I came in and blessed you with this color. You're welcome. Boom. Yep, that's me. That's me. (laughs) That's me. But how do you make this transition from this historic image, one that I wouldn't even call it static. I would just call it historic. I'd call it beautiful. I was reading in the book This Here Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley, and she quotes another philosopher who says, dignity is not given, it is affirmed. I hope I'm not botching the quote, but I did write it down Oh, here it is. You don't give dignity, you affirm it. And that's what I see absolutely in looking at this image and looking at the quilt. Can you talk about how you affirm the dignity of these historic figures? I love that quote, you don't give dignity, you affirm it, because I have had people ask me, people who don't necessarily look like us, so they don't have a full understanding, will say, I noticed that you make all of your subjects look regal and why or what's the process of that and I was saying to them no I'm just looking at them and this is the way they appear to me I'm not trying to make them look regal if anything maybe it's just that you're looking at them more carefully so like you said like the dignity or that inner regality I can't give it to them they have it already and this particular photo well first of all the pose itself, the cigarette, it, a lot of things start with me like an inquiry. I'm just perusing through photos and on the whole, I don't want to mispronounce it. Is it a whole singer? Yep, that's right. Whole singer. 
the whole singer, some of the images, I suppose, with your department that you had an assistant or somebody was uploading them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? So all of a sudden I saw this photo and someone else posted it on Instagram or, or maybe it was Pinterest. It came across my screen and then that spurred me to do research. What is the whole singer collection, UVA? Who was Bill Hurley? How is he sitting so erect? Like I read that he was a coachman. Someone else did the research. I just like peeked in. Yes. A coachman. I was curious also about the cigarette because photography in those days, like we talked about, you had to come correct, but holding that exposure, it just made me think about how important it was for him to want this cigarette included. How many cigarettes, you know? And to have the match. That's the thing for me is how do you capture fire with such old tech? Flame is not still. It's a few seconds. Yes. So that means that they had to do that again, again, until, I mean, that's the skill of the photographer, the patience of the model. Also, his hat was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I usually see men with hats with a brim in that era. I'm not so used to seeing like the sort of a cap style. Another thing that I read was that Bill Hurley was, let me see if I get this right, the last man. His boss was a mayor who murdered his, his wife. wife. Mm-hmm. And Bill Hurley was brought to the stands and he was able to be a witness. I don't know if it was a witness to the murder or a witness to this man's character, but that man did hang. Mm-hmm. A murderer hung. And I thought about what is the nature of a man, a black man in that era who can accuse a white man or even be brought in as a witness, live to tell it, and clearly still retain not only his life, but his dignity and his spirit. That's right. It began with just him being a good looking man. Yes. And then me trying to figure out when did he live? What was the circumstances? And thank goodness for the photographers and the archivists who record the people's name and date. Because if that stuff is lost to me, um, a lot of times only context clues are, if it's a studio portrait, what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. Looking at when we mentioned the collar, that rounded collar, the straight tie, or that it's a double-breasted vest, but how it overlaps so high up. Like You can find sort of the manufacturer of those clothes and when that style to give me an idea of what the world was like during his lifetime. And the color image, it's funny, when you were a little girl and you imagine the black and white world <laughs> of the past, I was looking at those same you know black and white movies that would come on. But as I was watching them, I would always be wondering what color they were actually wearing. Oh, so you knew they were in color. I think that I must have asked that question because when you said that, I never, I don't remember asking the question, but I do recall sitting and asking, well, what color are they really? So I must have said, is it gray? And then maybe somebody told me, no, no, they're in color. So then I would sit and ask, well, what color was that dress? And what color was this? What color was that? And I would be getting into the story, but at the same time wondering, you know, if Fred Astaire is is dancing or... Right. Ginger Rogers, the partner he had. Ginger Rogers. Okay. But those silk gowns, I'd be wondering what color it was. And I started replacing the colors in my mind early on. I would just get it in my head. You know, that dress is hot pink. And so every time I would see that film again, I would think of her wearing a hot pink dress. 
And I think that that sort of flip lasted. That's why I like using black and white photos now, because the black and white photo allows me to imagine what it might be. Yes. You know, just based on the grayscale, what is it that those colors might be? And as we know, colors is a dividing line in this country. Yes. But my original quilts were done as gifts to people in my family who are Black people. Yes. And my take on color or my philosophy on color really came from my grandmother and her New Orleans background. As you know, the Creoles were a community that wanted to remain independent and free. And sometimes, or a lot of times, that was their adjacency to whiteness, whether they were mixed race and to what degree were you mixed race, high yellow, you know, you were, were you just light skin, were you red bone, like all of these. In the vocabularies, remember, you could think mulatto, quadroon, octoroon. I forgot about all of that. All of that. That's what they gave us these terms like New Orleans. They created those terms as actual racial categories and people could have social status mapped onto that or the octoroon balls they would have, which would be. That's a part of my family's history. But my grandmother married more darker skin, complected fellow. But even her parents. Anyway, my grandmother used to always say, you are a black girl. And my grandmother wasn't my complexion. My father's from Ghana, so I look like my father. But she would say for herself, we were always Black people. She would never say we were Creole Black people. I didn't understand when I was a little girl that she was making a distinction from the way that she self-identified. And when I started doing the family research, I saw so many people who they passed or could have passed. And my grandmother did tell us stories about relatives who passed and they weren't necessarily angry at their relatives who passed but it was just like a family lore oh you remember auntie so-and-so she used to have an aunt who they called mammy round yonder mm. and i didn't understand those terms at all so when i grew up in new jersey i thought that was her name like first name mammy <laughs> mammy round yonder <laughs> over there somewhere over there <laughs> it was only when I grew up that it just meant like that auntie around the corner. I didn't know that or around the way. But anyway, my interest in colors is why my other features look very African-American. You know, I don't want to dilute that in any way. I'm loving our full lips and yes. broad noses or whatever the case may be, because some may not have not. We don't all have full lips or full noses. But um, my sister favors my mother, who's more light-skinned and has straighter hair, and I favor my father. We were and are only 11 months apart, and we were about the same height, same weight, same friends, very similar features, but one child being dark-skinned, one light-skinned. And we were treated differently when we were little. People would come up to my mother on the street, and they would look right at my sister, her name is Suki, and they'd be like, aren't you cute? And they would kind of just glaze their eyes right over me like like I wasn't there. And as you know, children on the playground, mm. they would get to the heart of it right away. Why do you two look different? Yes. Why is she so Black and you're not? But these would be Black kids. Yes. Oh, yes. You know. So if you look at the Black and white image of Bill Hurley, you could tell he was a melanated man. But I like to use color more to talk about his inner strength. He, to me, he looked powerful 
and he looked like a leader, that erect posture, even before I read about him, you could see it. So I use red a lot when I want to say that I think this person is powerful. You know, this person carries the character traits of Mars, you know, like God of War, passion. And then um, even I'm not of the Yoruba faith, but that idea of Shango, you know, mm-hmm. I see that in the image of Bill Hurley. So I used a lot of red and I used the blue on the converse side of him because we do have to be both. You know, you can be powerful, but first of all, you could tell he was cool. I don't even need to get the cigarette there and let you know. Exactly. (laughs) And his clothing, I am expressing that I'm of African descent. Mm -hmm. He's of African descent. I'm referencing my Ghanaian root by using that that Dutch wax African print. And I'm using all of the folk tales and the wives' tales that go along with those fabrics. Absolutely. And on his jacket, you see all those Euro symbols. Yes. I was actually wondering about that because I was going to ask, when you were younger, I read that you would paint guardian angels on your wall or protective figures. And I think that that seems to translate in the way that you deploy fabrics because, you know, the fabrics like, you know, I run faster than my enemies or the fact, you know, these messages, the Euro symbols that looks like, is it a horse? Yeah. The jumping horse. So like, can you talk a bit about how you communicate with the fabrics as also a form of language or a form of maybe not maybe talisman or something that kind of communicates something that's in the material itself. Right. I love that word talisman because it acknowledges like that spiritual resonance and also having like a mantra. We've always had to be people who think of, well, we've always been very spiritual people And we've always been people who have to think, hopefully, we have to think about the world beyond us or even after us. And a lot of times we have to pray for our living relatives who we may not be able to protect them in the way that we want to. That's right. And so that fabric with the jumping horse is known in West Africa as a Le Cour de Cheval in Cote d'Ivoire, in Togo, and the women, the shopkeepers, entrepreneurs, those women have named that fabric. Uh, I run faster than my enemies. And the enemies to them might be their other. Well, it's hard for me to say, you know, as a Western looking in, are the enemies their rivals? Are the shopkeepers? Are they rivals? Other women? I think another interpretation is I run faster than my rival because it's being translated from African languages and French into English, and all of the words are not exactly transferable. Right. That's right. But I love using that fabric because I think about how much it symbolizes us as a people and what I would want for this man in his life. Whatever I know about him, that he can conquer his enemies and always stay ahead of them. The euros on the jacket I was thinking about, well, first of all, he looks like a million bucks. That's right. That's right. Was it a million euros? Oh, I love it. <laughs> he looks expensive. Mm-hmm. He was a man of means. He was a person with a vocation that was sought after. Yes. Being, I think he was a coachman. And then also the price that is put on a human being. We, as people who were sold as yes. chattels, you know, as property, as less than a man. So I like to speak to people at multiple levels. I'm speaking to the African people who know that fabric. 
I'm speaking to the European or American audiences who don't know that fabric. I'm talking about him as an individual and then as a people. Yeah. I think that it's so beautiful because what it does, it animates. It absolutely animates what is already there. You know, it's kind of like your childhood vision coming to life. Like when you would look at the black and white images, you knew that they were in color. I, again, did not think that color entered my mother's life until 1970, which was when she had the great fortune to give birth to me. You are bringing that there. And I think one of the things I appreciate about your work is the multi-sensory nature of it. I had a lot of favorites from the show in Chicago. I went with my sister and y'all, listen, when you go to a Bisa Butler show, this is how your phone's going to look afterwards. <laughs> this is how your phone will look. I think I have some of the, I might have taken a screenshot for part of the playlist, and which I'm telling you, thank God for that playlist because other people were getting on my absolute last nerve. But like one of the things I wanted to ask about was when I see this image, and I believe the song, I wanted to talk a little bit about the dress here and the style here. And was the process similar seeing a group of Black women? When I see this, is Black women at leisure, Black women at repose. What made you look at this and say, I really need to put them into this? There was so much, like you said, Black women, they're at the same time at leisure, but they're very stylized. Yes. Their pose reminded me of my childhood in the 80s. Like, if you look at them, they almost look like the breakdance freeze pose. Yes. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just seeing that now. Wow. Yes. Like, they're very aware of their lines. It's casual, but... But not. But not. They actually, like, decided how they would be sitting. The photographer... Is the name written there? I don't know. Let me just see. I don't think so. Not from this one. I don't have that included. But... The photo was used during uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's Paris Exposition, the World's Fair. It's a Black photographer. It's slipping my name. I'm sure yourself or your fellow researchers know the name of this photographer. Or I will find it and put it in the show notes. How about that? Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and so that the women are posed because I did see an outtake somewhere else popped up. And I saw that they were kind of milling on the steps. They were men. There were also men on the steps. Oh. I guess he told them to step out. Of the it's way. like, move out of the way. If you're not bringing this, you can't come. You can't come. Step aside. I love the style, how it resonates. This photo, I was drawn to it because it reminded me of the photos that my grandmother shared with me and her photo albums of relatives from New Orleans, of the high necks, the long sleeves, the full skirts, their boater hats. Like these four young women are each individual and collectively so gorgeous. One of my friends said, my piece looked like, um, what did she say? The aunties at the cookout. And they're all talking, they're all judging you. <laughs> they're getting ready to call you over and ask how come you're slumping or something. Especially her right here. She's like, look at this. Would you look? <laughs> Would you look at here? Look at here. Look at here. Look, look at here. Look, look. Well, well, well. My, my, my. As I live and breathe. Lord. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it's so beautiful to see that because they're the aunties, but then these women are clearly very young. Yes. They're yes. on the steps of Atlanta College. It's also enlightening for me to see that that auntie attitude 
was already being expressed when they might have been, what, 20? Maybe, yeah. They do not look like they're, I'd say, between 20 and 25 at the outset, I would think. That's really what drew me in. Their fashion, their attitude, the breakdance pose, because they're giving power and strength. It's like they're like the council of elders who are going to confer on whatever it is that you're bringing to them. In my color version, I wanted to use color again to think about, there was a meme that was going on. It was like, which friend are you? You know, like, are you the fun one? Are you the wild one? Are you the sweet one? Are you the boss? So I was trying to use different colors on each young woman to show what their personality might be based on what I was looking at in the photo. And then I chose the patterns of their skirts to reinforce that. So one young lady has, looks like a lot of bling, like jewelry and sparkles on her skirt. And another young lady has hearts on her skirt. That particular young woman in the photograph, she did seem to have a, maybe a softer expression on her face. Right, right. And then I'm just using pattern to infuse these women of what I see and also what I wish. So the image of the young woman fans, that fabric in West Africa, the fan represents a prosperity, economic prosperity. The shop owners in, let's say, open market, if you have a fan, first of all, you've run electricity mm. all the way into your shop. That means you have more money. You have more clients. People are going to spend more time in your shop because it's cooler. So that fabric with the fans represents like, I'm a baller, basically. Yes. I'm a shot caller. <laughs> exactly. Baller. Exactly. And speaking of being a baller and a shot caller, I wanted to talk about the Spotify playlist or the playlist for your exhibition. When I was at the Connected With You back in June of this year, when you were at Jeffrey Deitch, it was like a party because it was music. It was like talking. It was amazing. For the Chicago, it was so wonderful. And for the Chicago show, it was like you could go to the playlist and bring your own headphones with both me and my sister. We were there together, but we each, you know, we happened to just travel with them, you know, because when you're traveling or in your pocket or whatever. This was such a gorgeous enhancement to have a playlist. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connection between visual and audio and the multi-sensory experience of your work. Because for me, I just thought it was useful because people were talking right next to me who didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> right. And I wanted to turn around and like say, can you shut all the hells up? Because you are talking really loud and you ain't saying nothing. First of all, this is, listen, I thought that you made this just for me and my sister to go to. So I was resentful when there was all these other people was there and they were just a jibber jabber, jibber jabbering over me having my experience. Exactly. Talk about that multi-sensory nature of your work, which I think is absolutely enhanced by the audio. And was the song for this one, was it I Owe You Nothing? Was that the song I for this one? I Owe You Nothing. Yeah. I think I rocked that song every that day, song. every day for like six months after I saw this. Listen, I've been proselytizing people. I'm like, listen to this song. It'll help you. <laughs> that song is so good. And the artist, Dania, I think she never like really got a lot of following in the U.S. But anyway, hopefully, hopefully she will, because I thought that that the lyrics of that suited perfectly. And I want to say it's my husband who is a lifelong DJ. He's been DJing since he was 12 years old. Wow. I met him at Howard. He was a big DJ on campus. He still DJs, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's awesome. Well, he totally, he killed it at the back in June, so. He did. I mean, it's like 
a lot of the DJs now, they're digital DJs, but he was wax. And lately he's been playing a lot of 45s. He collects records, album cover art. So when I met him as an undergrad, I would always be over at his place and he'd be playing music. So music has always been a part of my life that I've had with him. And now we actually share a studio and I'm on one side of it. It's like a big space, like a loft style space. And I'm on one side and he's on the other. And his music infuses our entire experience. And music, as you know, it's such a strong form of communication. It's such a strong form of art because you don't need words. You just need to hear the sound to understand somebody's emotional output. The uh, composer, musician, they can make you feel sad. They can make you feel happy. They can make your heartbeat go faster. They can make you go to sleep. But that's a form of control and power that can be passed down through the ages. And the music, as long as it's in a recorded form that we can hear, yes, you can hear how somebody felt, you know, hundreds of years before you. And I thought about that and I was talking to him and I was like, I really want my quilts to be able to resonate like these songs do. So I try to infuse my quilts visually with that feeling. And then we started talking about and it was at the Art Institute, I think, where it was first asked a friend of mine who now works with me in management. She was in programs, Erica Hubbard. Oh, wonderful. Saying, we would like you all to do a playlist. And I was like, well, that's perfect because me and him have been talking about how to wed these two forms. And like you said, understanding my artwork. Okay, you understand it. And I understand it because we come from similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But for people who don't, I don't want to have to write an entire essay to be at the bottom. These women are Atlanta College. It's 1919. It's a red summer. You know what I mean? People are being lynched, but they are college students. Mm -hmm. They are more than the talented 10. They're the talented one of the one percent. Listen, listen. Like, but how can I say that all when... It's too much. Now you've written a book. And people are standing there for like 45 minutes trying to read. <laughs> and you've lost them. You've lost them. Because you need to be able to communicate more efficiently. And you need to communicate on different levels. So the music, to me, is more than an aid. It's like, it's the explanation. You know, I don't have to say that, well, maybe I do. But still, some people spill that may not understand. I've had people ask me, do you change the colors of the figures because you don't want people to get hung up on race about black and white? And I'm like, no, this is really an interior conversation to black people. Like, don't get hung up on light and dark. But black and white is always going to be a huge issue. Absolutely. But this is a conversation, I guess, in somebody's home and a Black family home, and they're talking to each other. Yes. So you may be lucky enough to be, you know, the fly on the wall and you get to listen in, but they're not necessarily speaking to you. This reminds me of what it means to, like, for Black Women Stitch and the Stitch Please podcast, we center Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. That to make a deliberate choice to center Blackness. Also, at least for me, one of the things that I'm studying a lot in my own work is the question, what happens when you stop starting with white? And what I find remarkable about that comment, which seems like an odd comment, like to say, oh, she made them orange and blue 
so that we didn't think they were black. It reminds me, you know how you have some people, well, mostly it's like actually racist white person who's trying to prove that they're not racist. So they say something like, I don't care if you're purple. Right. <laughs> I have heard that. And before. so you make people purple and now they're like, are you sure they're really purple or are they black underneath the purple? Like, stop it. Stop acting like color is something that is new when white supremacy operates in this country deliberately through our laws and customs. But oh, no, no, it's really just about something color and you could just brush it away just so easily. Listen, you can lie to yourself, but you can't lie to me. Exactly. Mm -mm. What purpose does this serve? Because I know this is a lie. Let's not. I did want to ask about your work. I think that you kind of started us into the conversation talking about like meeting your husband at Howard. But I was also really interested in your work with Afrocobra artists at that time. And I wanted to ask just a little elaboration for folks who didn't get a chance to go see the show in New York. Womp womp for you. I'm so sorry to hear it because it was amazing. It's online. <laughs> it's online. You can look at my website. It's on her website. So you can go back and listen yourself, I guess, if you go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Please do it. But student asked a question. I believe she might have been a student. And she asked, would you have been the same artist if you had gone to a PWI and not Howard University? And I think that Howard University is not just a historic institution for Black folks because it's an HBCU that is not really in the South. So that's a whole different sensibility. But I think about all the artists that went through there. Toni Morrison went to Howard. Zora Neale Hurston went to Howard. Like all these people who went there, who taught there, you know, like, can you talk a little bit about what the art program was like? Because clearly the vibe was, you know, really complementary to your overall process. But can you talk about what that meant at that time for you as a developing artist? When I got to Howard, it was early 90s and there was a real consciousness that was, I said the consciousness of Blackness was rising in these young people who were the children of people who were around for the original Black Power Movement, 60s and early 70s. It was a revelation to me because my father grew up in Africa, so he always felt proud to be Black. He didn't have to be taught that Black is beautiful mm. or Black features are beautiful because everyone around him looked that way and felt that way. And not just because he was surrounded by Black people, but Ghana. My father was in the country when it gained independence and Kwame Nkrumah was installed as the first president. So he was there during those liberation movements. And then he came to the United States and was viewing the liberation movements from the American lens. And me as a child, you know, growing up in the 80s, we were in that post period where, I don't know, let's say that the narrative on the TV was everything is fine. Yes. I guess we have arrived. I grew up watching the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. We have Black people in commercials now. <laughs> Racism is over. That's always every five years, I guess, that's the narrative that white supremacists want to put out. Let's pretend again. It's over. Mm -hmm. We keep telling you it's over and y'all keep bringing it up. But I'm like, well, y'all keep doing racist things. We have the power and the money, but it's over. So I arrived to Howard's campus and was suddenly plunged into that world where my professors like Jeff Donaldson, Chatobia Benjamin, Frank Smith, they were primarily 
in the art department members of Afrocobra, that African coalition of bad and relevant artists. When they came to Howard in the late 60s, they threw out and demanded that the professors who were more establishment, more assimilationalist, leave and get out. Um, they also demanded a new college president. They wanted Howard to have a black president, which is, I don't think about Howard having a white school president or at Howard didn't teach African studies mm. when my professors got there. So we were here benefiting from all of that, but they were determined to school all of us children because Howard, they called the Mecca. There's kids coming from all over. I had an African father, but an American mother who was raised in Morocco. Right. So their sensibility was different. There's a lot of foreign national students, Nigerians, Haitians, Jamaicans. Then you have Black children whose parents come from the South, who have had wealth and money, you know, coming out of Georgia and um, North Carolina. They've been free Blacks for a long time. And that's a whole nother philosophy. Then you have Black students who are there on scholarship, financial who came from the projects, who came from farms, whose grandparents were and maybe were currently still technically sharecroppers. That's right. And that Mecca meant that you have this melting pot of students from the diaspora, but they don't have the same understanding of what is a Black American aesthetic? What is Black American philosophy? Who are we at Howard? What's our purpose? Why are we here? And that student who asked the question at my talk with Jeffrey Deitch or at the Jeffrey Deitch Gallery, the student asked, you know, would I still be the same if I hadn't gone to HBCU? But that Black power need, that strive for Black existence, that thread runs through every single class my math teacher, my science teacher, my gym teacher. Like there are people who look like me and there are people who are conscious that we are being fed negative programming through TV. Yes. You know, through movies, through commercials. Even through the schools that you went to before you got there. Everything, through the schools, through the food. You know, if you talk about like what foods are more healthy for Black people, you know, we do know our physiologies are not the same. How can you avoid the hypertension and the sugar that, you know, our grandparents had? Right. So I don't think that I would have been the same if I went to PWI because they're not zeroed in on focused on. First, let me make sure that this child's self-esteem is intact hmm. and let this child understand that they're coming from a long legacy of Black people who were fighting for liberation. That's right of mind and body. And it didn't just start with you. It's not just the now, it's not just the 90s. It's not just Black Lives Matter. But who was before that? You know, the Harlem Renaissance and Negritude. And who was before that? You know, the Back to Africa movement. Who before that? The abolitionists, like, there are these levels that you realize that you are just one and you see yourself as a people, as a nation, and as a continuity towards freedom and enlightenment let's say. And it helps you understand your place and center you around what is important as a whole, not just you as an individual. Mm -mm. You can make money. You could go work for Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. You could be rich. You could be a doctor. You could be a surgeon. But like, how can you help? Because there's so many people who lived and died and struggled and did not have to put you where you are. Do not forget about 
your grandparents who died because they were bit by a few mosquitoes and had medicine. Like you can't forget that they were buried in unmarked graves and you're just here like, no, mm -mm, I'm not about race, but are you? Like be grateful and conscious. I think that that's what Howard put on us. Yes. And I think the idea of the curriculum and the nature of your new professors coming in, because as you said, like the classical art techniques or looking to the Europeans or whatever as a way to study art, something that they completely tossed out. And so you were able to kind of concentrate on, you know, looking and inhabiting a position that was fully you and it was constantly supported and sustained. And it wasn't like, no, no, study this, do this. It was, you know, what do you want to do? And let's help you to get there. I wanted to switch really quickly to your art study at Montclair, which I believe you said was one of the first times that you turned to fiber arts. Why do you think that fiber arts were not as represented in your time at Howard as they were at Montclair? Well, I think that my professors, right, Jeff Donaldson, I think he came out of Pine Bluffs, Arkansas. At that time, Black Power Movement, we were striving for recognition, respectability. And so things that were seen as coming from the plantation and coming from times where we were enslaved were looked at as things that we want to get away from. If I want to be recognized as a fine artist, I'm going to study in Paris and then I'm going to go to Cote de Beaux-Arts of Sorbonne. I'm going to come back to the United States and now I'm elevated because I've learned, you know, under the feet of Matisse or Gauguin or whomever, Picasso. But that respectability, you couldn't gain it by saying I was weaving baskets and quilting with my great grandma or with Mammy Brown Yonder. You know, that wasn't looked at as respectable. So I think at Howard, that was the unfortunate part. It's positive in many ways, but maybe turning away from from, or maybe that's also an emotional response to want to turn away from things that remind you of harder times or maybe remind you of being without. Because a quilt was something that was, you know, used by poor people, especially the types of quilts that we would be using from leftover or worn out fabrics. At Montclair State, that was my first experience in a primarily white higher education environment. Right. And that the fibers department was founded by a bunch of strong white women, feminist professors who in the 70s um, broke down barriers and insisted that the fiber arts be a part of the main fine art curriculum. Oh. Any student who had an art degree of any type, even though I was art education, even if it was a philosophical degree, you still had to have the courses. And that meant that when I left Howard, I didn't have fibers and I also didn't have metalworking. So that one little fibers class at Montclair State opened the door for me. I was already gluing on fabric. I was trying to be like Romare when I was at Howard. And then when I got to Montclair State, my professors were like, oh, we're going to do felting, weaving. We're doing surface design. So we were doing all these things and that opened the door that had been closed. I didn't come from a quilting tradition. Mm -hmm. My mother and grandmother sewed clothing. And being the child descendant of enslaved people, I don't know if I came from the quilting tradition on my mother's side in Louisiana. Probably, yes. We know that the Ghanaians, the West Africans, Ghana is strong, known for their kente cloth and fibers. So I know it's coming to me, but I don't have 
and records. I really appreciate that and the way that your ancestry is something that is a constant presence because we are the sum of all the people that came before us. Like that is how we got here, right? It's because there's people before us. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the difference between studying art education where you're learning to teach people how to make art versus learning how to make art yourself as an undergraduate. Was there a big shift for that for you? Um, There was a huge shift. Art education was really how to present a lesson, you know, how to break it down into clear, concise steps, because you could be a master sculptor. Right. But if you're not patient and you don't know how to break it down to the core steps, then you're not an effective educator. When I would And as you know, when I would walk into a classroom, it would first be, let's agree to respect each other. You know, when you speak, I'll listen. And I made sure my students know that I'm not the holder of all knowledge. I'm not coming in here like Zeus, (laughs) bestow these little lumps of clay with knowledge. (laughs) Like, I'm like, look, (laughs) you have a lot of things that you could give back to me. Like, this is a two-way conversation, but let's respect each other less agree to respect boundaries and space and time, all of those things. So once you get that, then we can talk about like, we would like to learn or what I would like to teach you. And I have to start at the beginning. When I taught my high school students at American History High School in Newark and at Columbia High School in New Jersey, mm-hmm. we had to go through the basics. Like this is a needle. You see the hole at the end, that's the eye. And on a projector, thread the needle because they do not learn sewing at home. So you've got, and then what do you do with the needle at the end? Do you just drop it on the floor and walk out? Because that was a thing. Oh gosh. That was a thing that happened. And then like, how do you see them on the floor? Let's, we have to make our own little pin cushions. And, but you have to start at the beginning and then build on that so that you have everybody with you. That's right. And then you also have to give space for those students who've been sewing since before they were born and they could show you something. That's right. I think that your overall philosophy shows up so well in your practice and the way you think about your work. And I am so grateful for you being on the earth. So thank you for that. Thanks to your parents. And also for talking with me today, I have one last question. The slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. Oh, I love it. (laughs) So Bisa Butler, I am going to ask you, what would you tell our audience to help us get our stitch together? Oh, goodness. Uh, One thing I would think is be kind to yourself. Be patient with yourself. Treat yourself like you treat other people to help you get your stitch together. You know, enjoy your life. Look at beautiful things. Take classes and learn. And be patient if things don't look or seem the way you want, because we are all growing in this life together and you will get there. And on that note, we are thankful to Bisa Butler for this beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful. And that's wonderful because you're wonderful. And I'm also kind of wonderful, but it was wonderful. You're absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. I had so much fun. I enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. 
We appreciate you joining us this week and every week for stories that center black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. We invite you to join the Black Women Stitch Patreon community with giving levels beginning at $5 a month. Your contributions help us bring the Stitch Please podcast to you every week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Thank you.